0: Our Father, we're reminded that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts now to the very central truth of Scripture, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to move tonight... um, To the scriptural material that uh, is used to show the person of Christ, particularly Old Testament passages. But before we go there, I want to draw your attention to the picture that we have in the notes, the diagram on page 29, because that diagram shows. The process of rejection. And as we said when we started this particular series this year, when we we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, since He is the light of the world, men's response to that light doesn't argue for the inefficiencies of God's revelation. The rejection of Christ simply exposes the heart of the people who are doing the rejecting. Okay? It gets back to John 3. So, in the diagram, what I've done is I've said, look, it's undeniable that the Christian faith says that Jesus Christ was virgin born. That's undeniable. And we have evidences, as we said the last couple of evenings. That's why the Jews were calling him a bastard and and Mary a fornicator. I mean, that's why they were doing it. They wouldn't have done that if there hadn't been the the, the claim that he was virgin-born. So the very fact that you have all the scuttlebutt in the streets about who Jesus is shows that, in fact, the virgin birth claim was not only in the Scriptures, it was known in the streets. Everybody knew the, the claim. The question, however, is, what is the response to the claim? And the response to the claim is twofold. You accept Christ or you reject him. There's no neutrality. And if you reject him, why do you reject him? Why does a person argue that there's no light in the room? Well, because their eyes are faulty. So, only blind people deny that light is there. So, if someone cannot see God in Christ... All that shows is they punch their eyes out. That's all. It's an act of self-emulation, a um, self-mollification, where uh, the unbelief deceives itself and punches its own eyes out, and therefore it rejects the light. So how does it do that? Well, as you see in the diagram, it's the world view, it's the suppositions in the heart of men. And that's why I was so careful to quote on the bottom of page 27 and the top of page 28. I wanted to give you that quote because I wanted you to see that these elements that we keep talking about over and over and over and over again, we go over this and over this and over this because we all need the repetition. This stuff is all around us and we have to be aware of it. And here's a good statement. Here's this guy teaching in a summer school of theology out of Harvard in 1909. And follow his statement. The new thought of God will be its most characteristic element. Its ideal will comprehend the Jewish Jehovah, the Christian universal father, the modern physicists, omnipresent and exhaustless energy, and the biological conception of vital force. Now, what is he doing? He's doing what... This is, the continuity of being again. That is, that nature, gods, and man are all made of the same stuff. All God is, is a superman. He's just different in, qu- in, in quantity, but not qualitatively different. There's no creator-creature distinction here. If you can't distinguish between the Jehovah of the scriptures and the physicist's idea of a vital force, you're, you're wrapped up already in this thing. And if that's how you think in your heart, (coughs) then the logical conclusion is that this business about Jesus is malarkey. It's wrong. So, that's why I've entitled that last section that that sort of unbelief has to reject the virgin birth in order to be consistent with itself. That kind of unbelief can't permit the miraculous virgin birth to be bona fide claims. Because if it were a bona fide claim, the way the scriptures say, it would be self-refuting to the position. So there has to be a denial. And I emphasize this because it helps, I find, in conversations, because it, it puts a shock value in your conversation. When somebody thinks they're going to intimidate you because they know you're a believer, and they say, well, I don't believe that. It's nice to call back, well, of course you don't. I wouldn't either if I were in your position. And... Uh, It's not quite the reply these kind of people are used to hearing. And it's a good conversation starter, believe me. Because now, what do you mean by that? And then off to the races. So, we want to see the structure of this. I mean, two people can slug it out, you know. We don't have to take all the hits as Christians. It doesn't mean that we have to be snotty and impolite about it but it does mean that when in the realm of ideas, we can be as aggressive as any non-Christian. We have the truth. We don't have to sit there intimidated and look like the third string. Let's uh, go on then. And tonight, we're going to get on to um, the the, the three areas of data that the Scriptures present. Um, I've tried to classify this in terms of these three classes. In other words, what I'm trying to do, and I'm taking the biblical data about Jesus Christ and I'm putting it in three boxes. And the reason I'm doing that is because it's easier to remember it that way and it's a convenient handle for you to uh, see why, as we get into the heresies that develop, where these heresies go wrong and out of all that, because this is tough stuff, this is not easy material. And it just underscores my, my contention all along, is that we cannot study the Bible from the New Testament backwards. We have to study the Bible from the Old Testament forward. And here's going to be an illustration. As we go through the next five or six Thursday nights, we get in some pretty deep stuff here. Because before we get out of this, we're going to wind up dealing with the Trinity, now, all this sounds abstract and theoretical, but I hope when we get through this, you'll see it's not abstract and theoretical at all. It's very practical. It has some powerful practical results. And the Holy Spirit through the church had always sensed this. And this is why there were all these debates that went on. In fact, before we even get to the data, <coughs> if you'll look at the handout tonight and look on page... Um, I think I've got any here, on Page 37. This is the kind of thing that you need to be aware of as a a literate Christian. There's no new thing under the sun, said Solomon. And that goes for heresies. What I've done in that diagram on page 37 is I've listed six recurring heresies in the history of the church. They were ancient, and they are modern, and they keep coming up again, and again, and again. What, the, what we want to do here is get used to seeing these things, and then we don't, we're not taken off balance by them. You know, you know Joe was witness to come knocking your door, and oh, it's just Arianism. It's been around for 18 centuries. Same old stuff, nothing new. Watchtower Society out of Brooklyn didn't make this stuff up. Arius did, and he, he had first grabs on it. Just he didn't have a patent in the printing press, so he can't put his copyright on it. But the point was that they haven't introduced anything new, in other words. Nothing that the church hasn't discussed for centuries. So we want to, that's what we want to look at. And every one of these heresies bleed off into very practical results. They either wash out salvation, they wash out uh, knowing God, they just wash out a lot of truth. So we want to keep that in mind. So we're going to come now to the biblical data, and I've divided it into three parts. The first part, I've entitled Two Old Testament Streams of Revelation. I'll explain that one in a minute. Next one are substitutions where Jesus Christ is substituted for Jehovah when the New Testament authors quote Old Testament passages. So the Old Testament passage will read, Yahweh, or Jehovah, did this. When this passage is repeated in the New Testament, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, dot, 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 dot. So you have Christ substituted for Jehovah in the Old Testament quote. This is deliberately done. Deliberately and repetitively done in the New Testament. Now keep in mind, this is monotheistic Judaism. So this is a powerful claim that Jesus Christ is God. Why, if he isn't God, are they substituting him for Jehovah in all these passages? Come on. The third thing is where we also have substitutions in function. In other words, God, the Creator, does certain things. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ does those same things. So we have a substitution, often in the, t- in the standpoint of works where he actually shows this. actually Christ actually does these things. Things which any person who read their Old Testament would recognize immediately what this means. So, all this data is what was used for 600 years of debate and argument inside the church. Because it took the church pretty close to, not 600 years maybe, but it took five centuries to get down and argue about who Jesus Christ was and all the fine details, to get it finally balanced. So, we want to look now, start on page 30, and we want to start by looking at a New Testament passage. And the New Testament passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, you turn in the New Testament first. This apparently no, nobody knows for sure. This apparently was part of a hymn or some poem that was circulated in the early church in Paul's day. Um, presumably he's quoting it. Maybe the congregation that Timothy pastored knew this, this um, passage or something. Not in the Bible. But it's such a uh, a propositional summation of truth about Christ that it presumably was either a creed that was in poetic form or it was part of a, a hymn. Somebody had set this to, to music. So he concludes chapter 3 of 1 Timothy by saying, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now the key word here in this whole thing is the word Mystery. Mystery, when you see that word in the New Testament, is a technical term that usually refers to revelation that completes the answer to a question that the Old Testament asked and never answered. A mystery is not a mystery like a mystery novel. A mystery, when it's used in the New Testament, refers to a New Testament new revelation. Something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. So this is new New Testament truth. See, a lot of New Testament truth isn't new. It's just repeated out of the Old Testament. But when you see the word mystery, that is new. Okay? He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's obviously Christ. So... (coughs) Paul says that that Christology, that truth about Jesus Christ, is a mystery. It's something new. It's something that wasn't perfectly revealed in the Old Testament. So, what we want to move to now is what led up to that mystery of godliness. And we're going, we're, that's what we call these two streams of revelation. And here's what. how these streams look, and now we'll start looking at some verses. One stream in the Old Testament. This is all Old Testament now. Why are we going to the Old Testament? Which did God reveal first? Good teacher. He didn't teach lesson 52. He taught lesson 1, lesson 2, lesson 3, lesson 4, lesson 5. Then he got to 52. So you don't start with 52. You go back to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So, that's what we're doing. Going back to these early lessons in the Old Testament, and we notice something. There's a whole stream of evidences that speak of God's place with man. In other words, God's home is with man. Now, people, we we often think of God's home as heaven, but where was God's home in Genesis 2? And what did God do in Genesis three after man fell? He kept him out of the home. Remember, the first sign of capital punishment. And by the way, the Pope came out against capital punishment. I, another proof that he never reads the Bible. Capital punishment is the basis for all civil authority in the Scriptures. This is why it's in you know Romans thirteen. What's the sword in Romans thirteen? Excuse me. Genesis nine. What's the story there? Capital punishment. The first capital punishment in Scripture was d- done not by man, because that didn't happen until after the flood, it was done by angels. The angels had lethal weaponry in Genesis 3. they kill anybody that came into Eden. And they were guards that were put all around, angelic guards, armed, that were surrounding the Garden of Eden. And no man was to get in there, period, off limits classified. Reminds me when I was in the Air Force and, and you go into these command posts, sometimes the Strategic Air Command's and other places, and you'll see this big sign. They always have a big sign there, just to warn you. It always reads, Use of deadly force authorized by the commander. And that means that people were sidearms and there are bullets in the sidearms and you walk into that room without a clearance, you get shot. And they mean it. I remember I had one airman one time. Uh, he thought he was a smart aleck, and he went out in the flight line where they had nukes on some of the aircraft. And he was supposed to do his duty out there, and, and he was supposed to report to the guard, get clearance, and go out on the flight line. Well, the guard wasn't there, so he decided, well, I'm too busy. I'm not going to wait for the guard. And he went right on through the gate. Well, he got about 50 feet inside the flight line, and all of a sudden he heard it. <coughs> And he hit the deck, and behind him was this nasty-looking police dog, and he was turning around looking up the muzzle of a gun pointing right at his face. And that's what happens, because that area, you don't have these kind of people floating around your million-dollar aircraft with nukes in them. You protect those. It's off-limits. Well, that's the way Eden was. Eden was off-limits after the fall. Now, what a picture. Of the separation of God and man, men were not authorized to see God, to walk with Him or talk with Him. Period, you're out of here. That was God's home, God's throne. The water came out from the throne of God, watered the face of the earth. So God, So the fall ruptures this whole thing. The fall strikes at this, so therefore, ever forward in the Old Testament, you have this longing this longing for God to come back and make his home with man. And this is why God's name, sometimes you see this in the Bible, like this one, which we've commented on before. Emmanuel. It's, it's a code. This isn't, it, we see it as a name, and we often think of it as a popular name, but it actually is just a code. Em is the Hebrew word with, El is God, and Manu is us. With us is God. And it, was, it can cancel the home, the longing of the heart to restore this broken fellowship between man and God. So, there's a stream in the Old Testament that looks forward to God's place with man. And we're going to look at it verse after verse after verse after verse. But I just want to kind of aim us So we see what we're going to do here. Then we have a second stream of revelation in the Bible that looks forward to an ideal human ruler or human king out of David. And you have these two streams. Now, if you look carefully at those two streams, what do they argue for? In the person of Jesus Christ. What is his two natures? The two streams. What is one stream? God. What is the other stream? Man. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. So the deity and the humanity of Jesus is prevalent in these two historic streams in the Old Testament. So now... We're going to look at these streams and we're going to look at some verses. I, you really want to do a study. I've listed a lot of the verses in there. There's plenty more. But let's um, um, go to Isaiah 52.7, halfway through the Old Testament. We already know in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. God's glory came into Solomon's temple. But that wasn't enough, and men knew that. That was just a, a faint appearance of God. But in Isaiah 52, verse 7, this Old Testament verse is very important for many reasons, but here's one of the key reasons. This verse is the first time that the word gospel occurs in the Bible. This is the first place you see the word gospel. And remember the rule, when you study the Bible, the first occurrence of the word is the one that gives it the flavor. So you always want to grab that first occurrence. And you're looking at a concordance and you see where that word first occurs chronologically. Sometimes you have to adjust it because the books in the Bible aren't chronologically the same as in the concordance. But if you find the first occurrence, try to saturate your mind with a context in which that thing was revealed. Well, this is a prophetic uh, view of Isaiah. (coughs) And verse 6 gives you the context says, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking, here I am. Now what's that day? It's obviously future. Isaiah is a prophet. He's looking down the corridors of time and he's looking toward the future. And he says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel. Now comes the content of what Isaiah visualized the gospel as being. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Zion, your God reigns. Now look at that phrase. Your God reigns. Who's reigning? God is reigning. Who reigned in Isaiah's day? The kings of the north and the south. Remember we studied those Thursday nights? David as godly and, and as, as a man after God's own heart as David was. He wasn't this. They wouldn't be looking forward to this if David had satisfied them. So, so there's, this, there's this desire, this passion to see a day when God Himself will once again reign with men. Let me put a little spin on this for the 20th century or 21st century. We are used to seeing our universe as the planet Earth as a mere speck in this vast universe. A sort of incidental speck because all of us have been told in school, every school class we've had, every book we read, every movie on Star Wars that you go see, that the Earth couldn't possibly be the center of the universe. We don't know very much, but we know that the Earth couldn't possibly be the center of the universe. Now, theologically in the scripture, where is the center of the action, historically? Where does the incarnation take place? It doesn't take place on Venus. Where's the crucifixion of Christ? It didn't take place on Jupiter. This is the planet. This is where, theologically, it's the center of the action. And in, by the way, in the book of Revelation, where does God finally wind up reigning from? The earth. So this is that stream of looking forward to God reigning where man is. God and man were made for fellowship. It's a deep and profound thing that's embedded from one end of the Scriptures to the other. Now I want to take you to some passages that show you how deep that theme became at this period in Israel's history. is about a, between 1,000 and 700 B.C. Isaiah preached that the good news of the gospel would happen when God came and solved the problem. In other words, it gets back to good and evil. When that good evil problem is dealt with, that's the good news. Now, if you turn to the Psalms, I want to take you to a set of the Psalms, turn back toward a few books, to the 90s. All the psalms in the 90s have a common theme. And scholars have referred to these particular psalms as the enthronement psalms. And I want to show you four of them. Because I want you to see that all these psalms have a familiar connection to Isaiah 52.7. In Psalm 93, verse 1, these are all enthronement psalms. In other words, they're looking forward and praising God with the idea in mind that He's not far off, He's not separated way out away from us, He's with us and He's reigning. Isaiah, I mean, on Psalm 93.1 The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded Himself with strength. The world is firmly established will not be moved. Thy throne is established from old. Thou art from everlasting." Turn to Psalm 97. <coughs> How does it begin? Same phrase. Same phrase. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many continents or islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world, the earth saw and trembled. This is what people looked forward to. Why did they look forward to this sort of thing? Again, it goes back to a very basic truth. Remember this? We've seen this a thousand and eight different times. But there it is. Once again, over and over. See? The point is that the Bible knows that the period in which we live, this period, good and evil, is abnormal. It is not normal. Now, your non-Christian friends have a real problem here. They may laugh at you, but they're the ones that are the sad cases. Because those poor people are sitting here in a universe which good and evil coexist forever. Always has been around, always will be. Isn't that a lovely situation? Only in the Bible do you have a resolution of this problem. The poor non-Christian sits here and he has to accept the fact that evil is normal. It's normal state of affairs to be killing people and raping people and uh, death, natural disasters and so forth. All part of the world. Never going to go away. Always been here. What a sick, sick view that is. But that's the only view that poor people have. Because there's no revelation of any resolution to the problem. And... You see, this period when God separates the good and the evil, that's when God reigns. So these psalms are nailing this down. Notice in this particular psalm, it says the Lord reigns, but then look at verse 3 and verse 4, which we read. What's that talking about? The destruction of evil. It was a thing to be rejoicing in. You see why the gospel, when you see it in its depth in the scriptures, is a fierce thing? You such just please accept Jesus. Kind of thing. Some you know, sick, impotent, little sounding thing like that. When the gospel is heavy duty stuff here, the gospel says the universe is going to be destroyed and rebuilt. And there's a lot of people going to hell. They're part of the garbage disposal. Because when God finishes, this abnormal state is going to no longer exist because it's abnormal. He will not tolerate this existence beyond a certain point in time. And that's when He reigns. God reigns. He doesn't reign until then. Look at Psalm 98. Same theme. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. When do you see a new song in Scripture? When something great has happened. Remember when the Exodus happened? Miriam got out there and she made a new song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. God has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And so forth. So, uh, look at verse 4, addressed to the creation. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth, sing for joy and sing praises. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and all that dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You see the, the hope? You see the power of this thing? Now, let's think about it. The non-Christian mind has never come up with anything like this. The nearest thing was really a rip-off of Christianity. It was called Communism. Communism looked forward to the salvation of society by the dictatorship of the proletariat when all the governments would be thrown down and so on. Communism had a great attraction for people because it promised some kind of relief. It was an empty promise. It was a phony promise. All it gave was totalitarianism because it was in the end. What was communism? Salvation by works. And God will not permit salvation by works. Either individual works, or government programs, or all the rest. When God solves a problem, it will be on His terms, on His schedule, with His implementation policies. Then in Psalm 99, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. And I think you get the point. Embedded in the Old Testament is this passion to see God once again break out and have fellowship with man. But it's not naive, it's not a naive belief, because the fall of man is so deeply rooted in these people's minds, they realize that can't happen, God can't reign, we can't have resolution of this problem until something happens. And what is it that has to happen? It has to happen is the separation of the good and the evil. That has to happen, and that is an awful thing. That is an awful thing to happen. And that's what these Psalms are talking about. The earth trembling, and so forth, and everything going on. Okay. Now, we want to go further. We want to look at a second stream, and that has to do with a thing that we studied last year, or two years ago, actually, And that is the fact that in the Old Testament, God made a series of promises. And remember, for those of you who weren't here, we want to just talk just a minute about this word. You see it in the Bible. We want to eliminate that word. Not eliminate it, but substitute this word for it. And the reason I want to substitute that word for it is because it comes out everyday life. We all know what a mortgage is. We all know what a, a contract is on your car, contract on your home. Um, we know that it, there's certain legal terms. We sign on for this. A contract specifies when you take a note out at the bank, it specifies you will make a payment, 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 interest, 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 and so forth. In other words, it lays out a pattern of behavior for the two parties. You get the car. And the bank gets your money. And then the dealer gets the money from the bank. So, all that happens. It's all laid out in terms, explicit terms. Now, the interesting thing is that outside of the Bible, this doesn't happen, by the way. Only in biblical Christianity do you have a God that makes contracts. Think about it. Hinduism doesn't do this. Buddha never made a contract. Confucius does. not Allah doesn't. Funny. Only the God of the Bible makes contracts. What does that say? Only the God of the Bible speaks. Right? Make contract means i reveal revealed something. So that was proof right there only the God of the Scripture speaks. Where are the, where are the other gods' words? Where are their contracts? Where are their signatures? God signed one contract in the way of covenant. We have it optically every time it rains. Had it today, this afternoon, right in the sky. And what is that? The rainbow is a physical manifestation using water droplets of a certain diameter to show us physically, with refracted light, what his throne looks like. Because the first rainbow isn't from the rain. First rainbow in Scripture, the primary rainbow, is the bow around the throne that Ezekiel sees and it's seen, seen in the book of Revelation. So what we call a rainbow is a secondary phenomenon that reflects the, the glory of his throne. That's what it's there for. It's his signature. Every day he does a rainbow. I sign This is me. I'm talking to you, he says. Well, in the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant was an extension of the Abrahamic that promised that David's genes, through David, there would be the Messiah. And he would be the perfect human leader. He would fulfill the desire of all the great leaders of history, would be fulfilled in this messianic character. Now, in Psalm 89, it is dedicated to the Davidic covenant. And in Psalm eighty nine, verse four, the beginning of the Psalm, and verse thirty-six, toward the end of the Psalm, references made to that contract. Notice Psalm eighty nine, verse four. Or verse three. Look verse three and four. I have made a contract with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. You will always have a son who will reign forever and ever. Psalm 36, well, Psalm 35 first. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. So God has said, I have this covenant, this contract. Now, on one hand, God is going to come back and reign with man. On the other hand, there's going to be this ideal human leader. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to look now at some verses that hint that these two lines, these two streams of revelation that we've talked about, here's the God stream and here's the man stream, that those two streams converge in history. There's, there's, a, there's a power to the Old Testament that looks forward to this. And you get these little hints. These hints would seem to be nonsense were it not for the fact that we know God is nonsensical. And so, why do we have these verses that sound this way? Look at, look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Talking about God, obviously, it says, Who has ascended to heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment?" In other words, it's asking the same questions God asked Job to show the incomprehensibility of God. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now look at this one. Think about this. Monotheistic Jews. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Now, if you look at the quote that I have at the bottom of page 31... (coughs) Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Hebrew Christian scholar, personal friend of mine, (coughs) writes about it and he says this. When we look at the events described in these four questions, it is obvious that only one person could possibly do all these things. God. We first had four questions asking who did these great things. The answer was God did all those things. The fifth question was, what is God's name? And the answer is Yahweh. The great I Am is His name. The sixth question is, what is his son's name, if you know? Obvious meaning here is that this great God, the great I Am, has a son. No one knew the name of the Son of God throughout Old Testament Judaism. But Old Testament Judaism did know that God had a son. Striking passage. We want to look at some more striking passages. Let's turn over to one that uh, is intriguing. Isaiah chapter 9 You get this in Christmas hymns, but it's a carefully constructed verse. Isaiah chapter 9. Again, why are we looking at these verses? Because these verses hint that the two streams of revelation, the two streams of prophecy, that God is going to be with man and there's going to be an ideal human leader, these two streams converge. They don't meet in the Old Testament. They converge. In Isaiah 9, notice the care with which these sentences are structured. Notice how carefully they're put together. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, look at that. A child is born. Let's think about that. A child is born. Is that a human or God? Human. child is born. But then you look at the list of his names, and included in the list of his names is the term Mighty God. You see? Now, what has happened here is that this term Mighty God has been interpreted down through the history by heretics, as just merely meaning a heroic deity, a divine figure kind of thing. Not necessarily literally God. And again, if the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you ever pull this out, they're going to try to pin your ears back because they're going to say that this just means mighty God. It doesn't mean God, God. It just means a heroic God. Well, unfortunately for the Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the principles of reading Scripture is that let the context interpret the term. And if you look up in the concordance, and you check this word out, Mighty God, and you ask yourself, where is the nearest location where this word is used again? It's the next chapter. So let's turn to chapter 10, verse 21. Now, who do you suppose this is? In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, a remnant, talking about the future, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob will return to whom? The mighty God. Well, who did they leave? The, Jehovah. Well, you can't return to somebody you didn't leave. So, Isaiah ten twenty one is a contextual support for Isaiah 9 referring to full deity. So, this child that is born will be called mighty God. Um... There are the passages which I have uh, um, listed on page t- 32, uh, and you can go through those if you want. Uh, but the most important verse, the most important chapter, or most important section of the Old Testament, according to the New Testament, is Psalm 110. And on page 32, I give you all the New Testament references to Psalm 110, showing you, that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament utilizes Psalm 110 an awful lot. So let's turn to Psalm 110 and look at this one for a change. Again, why are we looking at it? Because we're looking at seeing a convergence of the humanity and the deity in the Old Testament. In Psalm 110, Who's writing this song? David. See the title? In the Hebrew text, that's part of the text. It's not a title. The English translators put those things up a title. You study the Hebrew, verse 1 reads, A Psalm of David. That is the first verse. It's not a title. So, David's writing this song. Now, what does David said? The Lord. Those of you that see in the English translation, it's capitalized. So that's what's name for God? Yahweh, Jehovah. Jehovah says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Well, now, let's back up a minute. What does verse 1 mean? Jehovah says to David's Lord. Well, if David has a Lord, it's got to be above David. But David was the supreme person in the land. So who is David's Lord that Jehovah says, sit at my right hand? You see how this opens up the possibility for a complexity in the Godhead? This opens up the idea that the Old Testament is not a solitary, lone, monotheistic belief. There's multiplicity in there. Okay, enough said. We've studied the two streams. That's what we just got done doing. We said there's a stream of verses in the Old Testament looking forward to God coming to be with man. There's a stream of talking about the ideal ruler of man being of the lineage of David and the convergence of these two. Psalm 110, by the way, was one of the first Davidic psalms, probably the only Davidic psalm, To look forward beyond David. So it's clear that the Holy Spirit at this point in David's life had already convinced him that he wasn't the Messiah. There was one to come after David who would be the ultimate Messiah. And it's this mysterious figure who's the Lord, who the Lord talks to the Lord. That's the one who's going to be the Messiah. Okay. Now we come to the second series of evidences, and the quickest way of looking at this is to look on the chart on page 34. And you can look all these up yourself, but we'll, we'll look at some of them tonight because they're pretty powerful. Uh, let's take those at the bottom of the chart, uh, Revelation 1.8, 2.8, 22.13, 8, and... Um, Look at this expression that occurs here. Isaiah forty-four six. We won't bother with Isaiah forty-eight twelve. It's an identical type thing. Just Isaiah forty-four six. <coughs> then hold that place and turn to Revelation chapter one, verse eight. Okay, Isaiah 44.6 says, and by the way, notice, Isaiah is talking. Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Okay? He says, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Now, how much more grammatical power can you pack in a verse to teach full deity here? I am the first and I am the last and there is no God but me. That's the context of this statement. The word first and last translate in Greek as alpha and omega. It's like A and Z. The first of the alphabet, the last of the alphabet. Last Greek letter, Omega. First Greek letter, Alpha. Now, if we look at Revelation 1.8, look at the context. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, Almighty. And you could say, well, maybe that's the Father speaking. Maybe that's not the Son. Alright, turn to Isaiah uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Revelation 2, 8, one of the letters to the churches. Who is talking to John and giving him the content of these letters? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is conducting an inspection of the churches. This is like an IG in the military. It's an inspection report, and the Lord is the commander, and He's going through the churches, and he's, he's telling them here's what's right and here's what's wrong. And it's it's an unseen report of the state of the church. And He's doing it in these representative churches. So it's clearly the Lord Jesus that's speaking this. But what does He use as a title in verse 8? He says, the first and the last. Now, the proof that this isn't the Father is look at the rest of the sentence. I am the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life. Did the Father ever die and come to life? So here Jesus Christ appropriates for himself a title which in the Old Testament context refers to God and God alone. What do you do with this? Is this blasphemy? Or is God Jesus Christ? You see what what is happening here? And the chart on page 34 shows you all the instances of this. Let's turn to Philippians 2, 9-11, because that one is often used very very frequently in our Christian work. And sometimes we don't think about it because we're so busy trying to think, well, gee, what does that mean to me as a Christian? And that's fine, but we don't think about the foundation underneath the verse. So, Philippians 2, verse 9-11. We'll go there first, then we'll go backwards to the Old Testament. Just remember familiar verse. Verse 9, Therefore, also, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him who? The Son, Christ, the name which is above every name, that at the name of who? The Father? Or at the name of Jesus? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now look at that little, in verse 10, those of you who have a study Bible, notice there's a reference in there. And that reference Keys you over to Isaiah forty five, twenty three. So hold the place a moment and come back to Isaiah forty five, Isaiah forty five, verse twenty three. I have sworn by myself, and by the way, verse 22, context. Who's talking? I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. Why is that verse ripped out of this Old Testament context and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ isn't God. You see what I'm saying? You're trapped here. We have to confess that Jesus Christ is God, or we have to say, we've got a bad case of blasphemy going on here, in the way these Old Testament quotes are cited for the Lord Jesus, and the New Testament writers think nothing whatsoever of plugging in the Lord Jesus' name in place of Jehovah. See that? Substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ in a verse that in the Old Testament clearly refers to God and God alone. I don't know how many times I have heard in my Christian life, well, the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is God. Well, now, I don't know how much clearer we can get here, folks, when you have Jews who are monotheists who read the Old Testament and see all this stuff, and you have the substitution... I mean, what is this? This is theological promiscuity going on here. Or, Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. So it's simply not true that the New Testament doesn't say that Jesus is God. And we could cite all those passages in that table on page 34. But we want to go one step further tonight, and we want to look at the third category of evidences. So we've exhausted category one. We've looked at category two. Now we're going to come down where the Lord Jesus Christ functionally does the things that God and God alone did in the Old Testament. So if you follow with me in my notes on page 34, I want to cover a few things here. We'll just read through this, uh, these notes. Uh, you can look up the verses. Uh, there, is ser- there are several verses we'll conclude with. We get time. <clears throat> but if you follow with me in the notes for a minute. <coughs> Very similar to the second category of biblical data about the hypostatic union is the third remaining category. New Testament authors show their apprehension of Christ's full deity by unashamedly and courageously reporting Christ in roles which God alone could perform. John says Christ is the creator of all things. John 1.3 Paul claims he is the firstborn of all creation and I put that in there because this is another one that the Jehovah's Witnesses will try to pin you back on. You'll quote uh, Colossians, oh, well, that's not really claiming that because Jesus firstborn of all creation. In other words, he was the first of the creation. Alright? So, let's look carefully. He is the firstborn of all creation, which refers not to the first created here as Jehovah's Witnesses try to claim, who ignore the fact that had Paul wanted to say that, he would have used the term protokatistos, which means the first created one. There's a Greek word that says that. But he didn't use that word. He used the word the firstborn, basically. But that refers, in, in context, I, and you can see it in Psalm 89, 27, exact word, it's meaning the first in rank. So it simply means Christ is Lord. It's just another way of saying He's Lord of the universe. Moreover, Christ, and this is, this is a crucial one right here. Look at this one. Christ is said to forgive sins, not merely pronounce forgiveness of sins. You see the difference? What does a priest do? Does he forgive sins, or does he pronounce in the name of God that they're forgiven? He pronounces that they're, they're forgiven in the name of God. Why can't the priest forgive sins? Because you didn't sin against the priest. Who only can forgive sins? The one that you sinned against, which is God. I mean, you know, if you go over and cream somebody, and they have a brother, and the brother says, "I forgive you," uh, no, not quite. You didn't offend that brother. You you hurt the other person. That's the person who has to forgive you. See, so the only person that forgives is the person who's been hurt. Who's been hurt by sin? God. So who can alone forgive? And the Jews knew this. Read the context when Jesus gets in these situations and says, I forgive you your sin. And they said, Excuse me? What did this guy say? God, only God can forgive sin. Right. Guess what that means? So this is a powerful. Something powerful. And it happens almost insidiously in the New Testament text. You read through it and never catch it. But if you read carefully the New Testament text and visualize yourself, you know, like you were Dennis Durham doing a play here, visualize how you'd paint this scene. Here these people are, and Jesus, here's this Jesus character. And he says, I forgive you of sin. Now, can you imagine how stupid that looks if Jesus wasn't God? So, that's one of the powerful evidences. Who, Mark 2, who can forgive sins but one? Even God. That's what the people were saying. Only the one offended can do the forgiving. To forgive sins, therefore, Christ was identifying himself with Yahweh, who was the one offended. Christ identified his teaching with God's Word in contrast to the prophets, to whom the Word of God only sporadically came. Furthermore, Jesus indicated at times he was omniscient, that he was omnipotent, that he was omnipresent, and that he was eternal. John's Gospel is a great exercise for this. You read through John's Gospel. John is so insightful, and he's so, um, he has such literary artist, artistry at how he does this. He has Jesus do these little things. He reports, and then he goes on with a verse, and he, he barely leaves you with a, with a clause. And then he goes right on. And you tend to read John's Gospel too fast because it's easy to read. But what you don't see is these bombshells that he's putting in there. Boom, 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 all the time in these verses. The, the greatest one I can think of is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here come the temple police, tough guys, out to arrest the Lord Jesus. And he says, I am, and they all fall on the ground. And then John says, yeah, and then this happened and that happened and it goes right on. And these guys don't even have time to pick themselves up and John's talking about something else. And it happens so fast to you. So, observe the text. The Gospel writers are very careful guys. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they set this up very nicely. So, Christ is substituted for God. Now, at the bottom of page 34, in addition, Jesus' free use of the very intimate Old Testament title for God, I am, is expressed in the Greek, ego and me. And I give you all the references there. He, unlike other biblical monotheists, permitted worship to occur with no rebuke. Now, we haven't got time tonight to point that out. I refer you to the verses. But if you look, what happens? Can you remember in the the New Testament, sometimes angels would appear to believers and the believers start to worship. And what do the angels always do? Don't worship me. Don't worship me. Get up. Get up. That's the angel's response. But the Lord Jesus allows it. So now what do we do with that one? Finally, in page 35, that other paragraph, I challenge you to read those five verses. That paragraph reads it or says it. Finally, finally in at least three and perhaps five passages in the New Testament, Jesus very clearly and unambiguously is called God. John 1.1, 1, 1, Titus 2.13, John 5.20. Those are the three bigots. Titus 2.13, is, he is both God and Savior. And the construction is the Granville Sharp rule. And it looks like this in Greek grammar. It is if you have an article plus a noun and a noun. And that all refers to the same the one article for those two. It has the same person. So, when you read that construction in Titus 2.13, He is God and He is Savior. Same person, not two, one, one. article. And then John 5.20 calls Jesus Christ God in a context where He's denying all other gods. The other two verses are somewhat problematic. I believe they do teach that Jesus Christ is God in John, Romans 9.5 and Hebrews 1.8. It's just that it's more convoluted to argue for that and defend it against a determined opponent. Alright, so that's the data. Next week we're going to deal with now what the church did with this to begin to formulate the doctrine of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this doctrine, this data that's embedded in the text now will be used. And there'll be fights that go on for centuries over this text or that text or another text until finally the church reaches a point when it has a very clear idea of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to this planet. We thank You for the fact that Your plan includes His kingly reign forever and ever, that we have not been left excluded from Eden, that You have for us gracious invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that we may be saved. And more and more we understand why there is no other name given among men whereby we may be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that every assault and every attack upon the person of Christ, diminishing his person in any way, shape, or form, is a direct assault against the gospel of grace and against the salvation without which we are doomed. So we thank you now in Christ's name, our Savior and our Lord, and ask that He constantly reveal Himself to us and you, through Him to us. In Christ's name, Amen. We'll have some uh, Q and A in a few minutes. If you want to stay, otherwise you're free to leave. Okay, um, we have time for some questions. Now, Paula, I thought you had a question. I um, wanted to ask you to clarify um, imputism and inheritance. I, I understand what you're saying by imputism. I, I just don't understand the difference between inheritance and inheritance. Okay, good question. Because if we don't are not clear here, then we can't understand imputed righteousness and inherent righteousness either, because they're analogs. Uh, Paul's question is, she would like some more clarification about the difference between imputed sin and inherent sin. Remember, we said last time Jesus Christ had to be virgin-born to avoid three categories of sin. He had to be virgin-born to to and the reason he had to be free of sin is because he had to be the sinless one who atones for sin. If he wasn't sinless, then he would only atone for his own sin, not ours. <coughs> so, the Lord—excuse <coughs> me—the Lord Jesus had to somehow become the Lamb without spot or blemish. Well, how did he do that? Well, we say he did it through the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is so elaborately designed and choreographed that it avoids these three issues. It avoids, in one sense, it avoids personal sin, in the sense that uh, the Lord Jesus came into the world as a perfect person and never once sinned in his personal life. Adam came into the world as a perfect person and did sin. So, Adam sinned and Jesus didn't. That was their choice. So, that, that's a clear act of sin. We all know that one. We're so familiar with that. That theology we've got down great. So, personal sin, everybody knows what that is. Now, imputed sin and inherent sin also operate. And it's because of those that the plan of salvation is designed the way it's designed. Imputed sin... So, let's think about the word impute. It's nothing more than an old-fashioned word that means to value or credit. When an accountant credits in the column, instead of a debit, they credit. Um, When you're buying stock, say, in Company X, and you're sitting there, gee, how much is this stock worth? For this company, you know, you look at the balance sheet and the income statement and you wonder, I don't know, how much per share is this company worth? What you're doing is you're imputing value to the company. You're trying to compute in your head what this thing is. Let's take it down to everyday everyday situation. When we go into the grocery store to buy food and you've got a choice between this product and that product, you're imputing you're evaluating whether you're going to buy this or whether you're going to buy that. Is that package worth $1.53? Or can I get a better deal with it twice and it's you know, less than two times that? Well, all those calculations you make when you buy things or thinking of buying things, that is imputing. That's the experience of imputing, crediting. Now, God credits... He also does something analogous to the way we buy groceries. Except, the difference is that he's omniscient. And when he evaluates, his evaluation is perfect. But our evaluations aren't. I mean, you may buy that nice hunk of broccoli or something in the grocery store and get under a big fat worm in it. So, you know, you, we didn't evaluate that one right. And if I would known that, I wouldn't have paid that for that because we are imperfect evaluators. So our evaluation are always imperfect. God's evaluation is always perfect. So what God says is that he visualizes the human race in Adam, corporately. The whole shebang. All men, all women, all babies, all children, everybody in Adam, corporately. And we said that you see that corporate nature of the human race in passages like Hebrews, where it talks about Levi being in the loins of Abraham, you know. And it, it, it's here, here maybe is an illustration um, from contemporary politics that would show this corporateness. The President of the United States authorized a missile attack on Ben Laden's hideaways in Afghanistan back a month or two ago. That was an act who you could argue was just done in the White House. But Ben Laden, who was the object of the attack, one of the greatest and wealthiest terrorists on the face of this earth, in my opinion, a lot more dangerous than Y2K, um, he takes that as, a, as something done by all the people in the United States. And therefore, in his eyes, he has the right to kill any of you, me, terrorize us, bomb us, kidnap our children, or anything. Because although Mr. Clinton signed the order, strike order, he did it in the name of the United States of America. So therefore, corporately, we share what went on in that attack, in that assault. And that's easy to see. So so similar, when Adam sinned, God credited all of us collectively in Adam. Now you see, that's unfair. If I'd been in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have done it. Baloney. Done the same thing. Come on. So, the point is that Adam acted as our representative before God. And God evaluated Adam as a rotten thing. Imputed sin. That's what imputed sin is. Romans 1 talks about that. So, all the human race is evaluated as sinning in Adam. Sometimes it's called a regional sin. But I don't like that because that tends to smack some Roman Catholic anthropology theology and I just prefer the term imputed sin. God imputed sin to all of us because of our representatives. Now, you can say that's unfair, but you see, it's good that it happened that way. Because guess what else happens? In Romans, Paul argues the doctrine of imputation backwards. Just as God imputed Adam's sin to all of us, guess what he also does? He imputes the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ to all those who are going to be in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And it's independently, just as our personal sin is kind of separate from Adam's sin, and yet it's sort of part of it all, so our personal righteousness isn't what gains us imputed righteousness. What gains us imputed righteousness is our position in the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect work is credited to our account by God the Father. That is an amazing thing, and Paul builds on that in Romans five. Very difficult passage in Romans five, where this happens. So that's imputed sin, and it's answered by imputed righteousness through Christ. In that case, Adam and Christ are very similar. One is the head of the human or all the human race; the other is the head of all the regenerate human beings. Okay, that's imputed sin. Now let's move to inherent sin. Maybe that's a bad term. We could, might call it, if you want to, inherited sin. Because inherent sin has to do not with a legal valuation, nor does it have to do with the individual acts that we do, personal sin. Inherent sin refers to that insidious power that we all experience as our flesh that pulls us down It's that which, without regeneration, we are called dead in our trespasses and sins. It's the spiritual death that reigns in our souls, from which there is no escape, apart from something called regeneration, and the giving of a new nature, and the impartation of that new nature. The difference between imputed sin and inherent sin is like this. Imputed sin is credited immediately to our account. It, imputed sin leaps directly from Adam to you. And from Adam to me. Independently of yeah, what my father did, my grandfather did, my great-grandfather did, Japheth, Noah, all the way back to Adam. It's not talking about it. It's leapfrogging. Imputed sin is. From Adam, boom, to me. I'm an atom, boom, I'm credited for it. Inherent sin, on the other hand, is transmitted. Boom, 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 down, through time. If imputed sin is a legal concept or evaluation kind of thing like you use in the grocery store when you're buying things, then inherent sin is energy or fatigue, spiritual fatigue that brings me down, that I'm always apart from the regenerating power of the Lord Jesus, I cannot meet temptations. I fall. It's what drags us down. That's inherent sin. We are inherently sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So not only are we credited as sinners because of our union with Adam, but we are also sinners from our birth. This is David in Psalm 51 when he confesses his adultery and murder. David goes back and he confesses very deeply. He's not... You know, it's very interesting, that confession psalm. We studied that two or three years ago. And you read Psalm 51 in the light of the narrative of what David had done. It, it strikes you as very, very unmodern and unpsychological because he says against thee and thee only have I sinned. As though what he did to Bathsheba and her husband Uriah is almost incidental. The way to interpret that isn't that David's making that incidental. He, he's very aware of it. It's rather that by contrast, what he did before God was a thousand times worse than what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah. That's the nature of Psalm 51, Confession of Sin. And so he confesses against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And then he says, and I am a sinner from my mother's womb. Now, what does he mean by that? It means that he not only recognizes that he personally sinned, category three, but he recognizes that he had inherent sin all of his life, category two. Three categories of sin. Personal sin, Inherent sin, imputed sin. And it's to circumvent all three of those that God invented this neat method of getting a member of the human race into existence so he'd be genuine humanity, yet he would escape the three sins, those three categories. I mean, it's quite, quite a maneuver. You talk about a chess game, you figure this one out. The plan of salvation, perfectly executed, Designed from eternity past. Designed billions of years before anybody ever sinned. God created Adam so he would be redeemable. That's what Paul says. In other words, before Adam was even created, he was created because God knew that he would sin and God wanted to save him. So God even made him in his creation this way. This is why he took woman out of the sight of man. Why did he go through that little story? Isn't that just a cute little Poetic story. No, it's not a cute little poetic story. Woman was taken out of Adam so she could be savable. If Eve was an independent creation and Adam sinned, she wasn't an Adam. Or if she sinned and he didn't, anything happens over here doesn't have a thing to do with her. So, by taking her out of the side of Adam, she too is derivative of Adam and therefore she's part of Adam. Adam. So, all of this gets involved, but it shows you, you dare not come into Scripture at 65 miles an hour uh, with a cafeteria approach. I want this, and I don't want that, and I want this, this looks glimpsy, and I don't think that's great, and just zip on through. No, you don't do that. Because all these are details. And they all fit together. We may not know how they all fit together, but they all fit together somehow. And we can see at least bits and pieces of this elaborate, magnificent plan of salvation that God has designed. So that's the three sins. Is that clear? Inherent sin, it comes down through and it's more like energy and fatigue. Imputed sin is an utterly different idea. It's the legality, it's the valuation, and it's immediately accredited to us by virtue of, of our participation in Adam. Um... Just a few more minutes, do anybody have anything else, Debbie? Yeah, this... Okay, let me, let me run through that again and let me caution you on what is of the Word and what is speculation. We know in Scripture that somehow the imputed idea, not inherent now, I'm talking about imputed, comes through the man. And we get that out of Hebrews 7 and these passages that speak of the, the sons and their father and what the father does, the sons... Um, inherent sin is transmitted biologically. It appear, it's it's a spiritual death, but it's wrapped up in the imagery of the Bible with the flesh. And it seems to be transmitted biologically. David, Psalm 51, I was a sinner from my mother's womb. So he's inheriting the process. Now, Eve is called the mother of all life. Man is never called that. She is said to be one woman whose seed will be that which conquers Satan. It's not Adam's seed. It's Eve's seed. And that is a strikingly strange passage. It's a very awkward thing to say there. Because the word seed, if you look in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated by sperm. It just doesn't it just doesn't fit. So, when you see these verses like that, they just kind of, bam, they just, ooh, they don't fit right. You have to back up and say, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he picked this vocabulary. What is he trying to tell me here? Why is he using male sexual imagery for the woman? What, what, what's, what's this all about here? Well, we we infer the idea that the woman's egg, her ovum, is a uh, free of the contamination of sin is a speculation of Dr. Custance. All Christian scholars don't agree because they think that the Virgin, it's okay because the Virgin birth, the Holy Spirit interrupted the process and miraculously did it. But I think... That it has merit for this reason, the Holy Spirit create. He could have eliminated Mary's, um, you know, if she her ovum was contaminated by sin. He could have certainly worked it, but it seems that it's more clever of God to have set up the creation with this um, doorway. Let's just put it this way: it's like a door so that he could walk through that door without jerking around, changing the DNA structure, whatever it is that's contaminating our DNA and making us all die, that he has this biological entryway. And so what Custance takes is these scriptures that speak of this odd thing going on, and then he takes the physiological fact that that the the, the germ seed, or the, what do you call it, the stem cells um, that aren't differentiated, that come out of our, the sperm and the egg, that these cells are passed on identically from generation to generation to generation. Then they're different. They're just simply different from the body cells that are all specialized. And so, he looks at the, the sperm which can't live and it's, it's stripped of a lot of, of the things that the ova has. The ovum can live and the sperm doesn't have the viability of it. So what Customs has argued is that he thinks that when Eve ate and Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil more happened than just symbol, symbolism. He believes that there was a toxin in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that it was absorbed into their bodies at the point that they ate. So, that this toxin went to work. And whatever it is, it, it biologically contaminated everything except the ova. And that this is passed from girl, you know, mother to daughter, from mother to daughter, mother to daughter. And the hint that there's this doorway, this, this strange thing about women in the scriptures is if you look at the scriptures, there's constant attack on this point. For example, in Genesis 6, there's a strange passage that plagues Bible scholars. What the heck was the, the uh, sons of God doing with the daughters of men? And I'm sorry, but people try to make that the godly seed and the ungodly seed. It just doesn't work because the Hebrew text is clearly <laughs> ambiguously saying these are divine beings. These are angelic beings that were mating with human females. Now, why would they have done that? Why don't you have uh, female angels mating with male human beings? Why do you have this, this funny gender thing going on? And it's very conceivable that what that was was a satanic attack. If there could be genetic effects of angelic intercourse that destroyed... That over. So it wasn't pure ova anymore. It was, it was, it was contaminated, Biological engineering. If that had been successful, Satan would have been successful in stopping and shutting down the door. And the human race would then no longer be savable. And what in fact God did, he brought a destruction of the entire earth because of this stuff. Whatever this thing that was going on, God said, that is going to stop. And not only did God say it's going to stop, but in the book of Jude, he had a special sentence passed on the angels who transgressed. And they're in a place, a special place in hell called Tartarus. It's not just like hell like everything else. They are confined to a special place because of whatever it was that they were doing back then in Noah's day. Strange thing. We're not given much information on it. So all this is speculation. It just, to me it seems to fit the way God works and it pulls together some of these passages. I would not stake my theological life on this. I would just simply say that I think it's a godly spe- speculation worthy of our of our interest. And I think this is shown also in Jewish tradition by the desire of the Jewish women who I, I presume, uh, at least Arnold thinks this, but I've, I've never developed it to find out where the historical confirmation is, of the desire to be the mother of the Messiah. There's that, that kind of hidden tradition. Um, so, you know, it's, it's all it seems to be there. And, and Eve is called the mother of all life. Why? Why is she called the mother of all life? So, it's kind of convoluted, but that's the best I can do with the speculation. If you really want to get into the biology and the physiology and anatomy, he has a 450-page book called The Seed of the Woman, and he goes into all the biology and all the experiments that have been done in this area. So he's, he's not flippant about this. Arthur Customs for the background, he was a physiologist in Canada for the Canadian military that devised a lot of the counters to torture of human beings, because the Communists had he, these elaborate ways of torturing people. And it was Arthur Customs who studied those systems of torture to find out what, why the human body would react. Why could you torture people and, and make these, get them to commit to these things? Horrible uh, things that Customs had to deal with. Um, so he's very, very schooled in the details of human anatomy. He's not an amateur. He's a PhD in this field. Any other questions? Okay, well, next week we're going to move on to the hypostatic union doctrine. And if you haven't read some of those verses, I really hope that you would in the notes. Just skim some of them, particularly those five verses, Titus 2.13, John 1.1. You'll want those in your head as we get into this doctrine now.